is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Episode 12. Here we are, Andy. Hi, Larry. How's it going? It's tense. We're uh, in the midst of getting this film finished. It's exciting, but it's tense. uh, Filmmaking is not for the faint of heart. No, 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 it, it is not. Nonetheless, it's a wonderful way to pass the time and uh, tell stories, and that's what this is all about. And there's an opportunity to tell another story right now. That's so exciting. You have so many. What are we going to talk about today, Andy? Well, today we're going to talk about mums. And this is a two-part story, which really has a fascinating ending. You have to wait for the the second part until next week. But um, it starts, it's another whistleblower story. And it was really how I came to get involved with whistleblowers in the first place. Let me just characterize whistleblowers because they come in different shapes and sizes. And I've encountered quite a number now from industry and from government who've come to me with stories of gross misconduct within their various institutions. And this is one about a government whistleblower from the United Kingdom. And whistleblowers come in various guises. Some are simply looking for absolution. They treat you as though they're, you're a priest. They just want to tell you their story and having told it, they feel they, they somehow shed this huge burden that their conscience is now clear and they want to do nothing more. The fact mm. that they've put millions of children at risk, that they've actually physically done harm to these children directly or indirectly by their actions. They don't care. They just the come and confess. Telling of their story is enough to absolve them. Mm. And then there are others who, for idealistic or financial reasons, are going to tell their story, are going to take it all the way to either a settlement in court or a, a settlement prior to going to court or a, 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 an award in court. They're determined to go the distance because there has been a gross violation and, and they feel aggrieved by that. They've been asked to be involved in a fraud, they've refused, they've been threatened, and they've taken it all the way. And those people, idealistic or not, are, are, are more compelling and they're easier to deal with. And I, I get very, very angry, very frustrated with those who simply feel they can come and tell you their story and clear their conscience. William Thompson was one of those. And I, I have to confess, I'm deeply, deeply disappointed and angry with William Thompson. He's a gutless coward as far as I'm concerned, mm. because he came forward having confessed that he'd been involved in putting millions of American children, children around the world at risk of permanent brain damage by concealing evidence of a link between MMR and autism and destroying or being involved in the destruction of documents. And having told his story, then went no further, wouldn't testify, wouldn't insist on uh, whatever the price to him, uh, putting this right, making amends, real amends, trying to make amends, trying to really do something to prevent further harm to children who didn't do that. And Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, I have contempt for William Thompson. Mm. Uh, This is a story of similar character. And he came to me. We actually met. It was like a, like a George Smiley. I don't know whether you're a fan of John le Carre, a great writer about spies. Oh, sure. But le Carre, with, this was very much a le Carre sort of story. I got a call from 
lawyers involved in the MMR litigation in the UK many years ago, I think 1998, to ask me to come to a meeting on the train station in Newcastle in the very north of England on one cold Sunday. And I, that was a very long journey and trains usually don't run very well at weekends because they're fixing the line and mm -hmm. everything else. But we eventually got to um, Newcastle Station and there we were to meet with someone who called himself George. George was not his name. But George was the name that he used clandestinely to tell his story. Mm -hmm. And we met him in a coffee bar on the station and it turned out that George was a civil servant. He was a physician who worked in the vaccine division and had been brought in from Canada. He had, at the time, there was a problem with the MMR vaccine. There was a, this was the vaccine made by Smith Klein Beach, not the Merck vaccine. And it was based upon the fact that the mump strain, Urabi AM9, which originated in Japan some years before, which was a component of Smith Klein Beecham's vaccine, was causing meningitis. And this became apparent in Canada quite early on after the vaccine was introduced in Ontario, where George was working at the time. The problem was recognized quite quickly and the vaccine was withdrawn. And this story is, is told in Vax, in fact. What happened was that at the time there was an intention to introduce this vaccine as the as the preferred vaccine in the UK. The MMR was not being used at the time, but there was a, an intention to in, introduce the MMR. The politicians were very keen, and this was being driven by an ex-pediatrician called David Salisbury, another person for whom I have the greatest contempt, who actually ironically used to work for Professor John Walker Smith and who, having retired as um, the head of vaccines in the UK, is now on, or at least was until recently, on uh, the Gates Foundation's um, Global Vaccine Initiative. Oh, my. Yeah. And he was very, very keen on getting this vaccine. If this was going to be his sort of life's mission, he was also keen on giving the major part of the deal to the local team with LactoSmithKline as opposed to Merck. They'd offered a cheaper vaccine, I believe. And the only problem was the only strain of mumps they had was this dangerous Urabi AM9. Well, that didn't seem to matter to David Salisbury. He was prepared to take that risk on the behalf of British children and push the, uh, the, the English manufacturer's vaccine. And this whistleblower, George, was asked to come in from Canada to advise the... Um, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization in the UK on the merits, on the wisdom of introducing this vaccine. And he said, you shouldn't do it. Mm. Don't do it because it's causing problems. We've withdrawn it in Canada. And um, it, 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 it's clearly problematic. Um, don't introduce it. Well, he was ignored. The advice was ignored. And in fact, on the same day, at the same, the very same time that it was de-licensed in Ontario, it was licensed in the UK. The only thing that was different is the name had changed. Um, they changed the name, presumably to disguise the fact that they were dealing with the same dangerous vaccine. They changed the strain name or they no, changed they, the they actual changed product the name? name. Of, of the MMR. They changed the product name 
of MMR from um, Fluzerix to trivirins. Okay. And that was presumably an effort to cover up, mask mm -hmm. the fact that it was the same dangerous vaccine. And so very soon after this vaccine was introduced in the UK, against the advice of those they brought in to tell them what to do, then cases of meningitis started to appear, and the Joint Committee tended to brush those to one side to minimize the significance of those cases until ultimately, some four years later, they were forced to do a study called the Nottingham Study to see whether, in fact, there was a higher rate of meningitis with this vaccine. It was found that there was, and the vaccine was literally withdrawn overnight. In fact, wow. the drug company withdrew it before telling the government, which left David Salisbury in a somewhat embarrassing position. Mm -hmm. And he was forced to go, as, as George told us on Newcastle Station on that cold Sunday, he was forced to go cap in hand over the weekend to in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe, to beg them to make up the MMR vaccine stocks in the, in the UK, mm -hmm. which they did. And I'm sure they were. They loved that, I'm sure. They, I'm sure they gloated over that one. Um, David Salisbury is not a humble man, and it must have been very difficult for him to go there on bended knee. But that is what he had to do metaphorically. So we then took on the GlaxoSmithKline, I think, then got a license for Merck's um, Gerald Lin strain, which was the strain that did not cause meningitis, or if it did, it was a very, very low level. This vaccine, the Urabi AM9 mumps vaccine, in the MMR was subsequently withdrawn around the world, in Australia and elsewhere. It was never used in the United States because Merck had a monopoly on MMR in the United States. And so it was never a problem over here. Mm -hmm. But the vaccine was not, even though it was withdrawn in first world countries, and, and you'll remember this from, from Vax, it was not taken off the shelf. In fact, it was boxed up and sent out to Brazil mm -hmm. and other third world countries uh, where it was used in a mass vaccination campaign. It's incredible that they get away with this, Andy. Well, I wish it were incredible. You know, this is the problem is that the pharmaceutical industry are so bad, so truly evil, so contemptuous of humans and human suffering. Well, and the arrogance. They, they had a product that they could sell and they sold it and it went out there. And of course, what happened is because they attempted to vaccinate every child in Brazil in one month, there mm -hmm. was an epidemic of meningitis a clear epidemic of meningitis. What happened after that is that the paper was published, and this is astonishing to me. In this paper, in the discussion, it said to the effect, we perhaps shouldn't conduct mass vaccination campaigns because it reveals the true incidence of adverse reaction. Wow. Isn't that cynical? Even if you thought that, even if you believe that, the idiocy of actually writing it in a scientific paper. The that arrogance, is sh the, sh the, the arrogance. The sh it's yeah. shocking. It's shocking, but nothing, nothing, sadly, nothing shocks anymore. So, um, yeah. So that was that was George, and George came forward and he told his story, and he said, "I'm prepared to go before the court and tell this story. I'm prepared to go public." And no. He didn't because oh. George got frightened. 
he came, you know, he claimed he'd been driven off the road in Scotland and he it had been attempts on that. He got no. chicken he got chicken fever. He did. And George <laughs> really had a story to tell which would have been compelling. I wrote about it in in my book, Callous Disregard. Um get it on Amazon while you still can, by the way. Yeah, while well, you still can. <laughs> but it really is a, a a, a sordid story of what happened to the mumps vaccine in the UK. It was overreactive. The Urabi AM9 strain was overreactive. And in fact, what happened in Japan, it was rapidly withdrawn in Japan, and they never went back to using mm-hmm. the MMR vaccine again. And people say, well, hang on, Japan has got a, an explosion in the incidence of autism, why would that be if they never used MMR again beyond the withdrawal of the vaccine in the 90s? Why would they have what you claim to be an MMR-related problem? Yes. What's interesting is Japan had a, a unique pattern of autism, absolutely unique, never seen anywhere else in the world. And this came out in a paper from... Um, from Japan, co-authored by Professor Sir Michael Rutter from the United Kingdom, a fact which he failed to, when, when, he, when he put his name on that paper, he broke all the rules by failing to say that he was an expert, a paid expert oh. um, in MMR litigation in the UK. I mean, the, the one rule for one and one rule for another. Um, it doesn't work. It was never, never held to account. You've, you've got to disclose, right, or your credibility is... completely failed to disclose that he was publishing a study on MMR and autism. But the, the pattern of, 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 of autism in Japan was very, very interesting. And I don't have the precise numbers in front of me, but what happened is it was very rare, very rare. And then MMR was introduced, and there was a coincident with the introduction of MMR. There was a sharp rise. Mm in the incidence of autism. Then it became apparent that the MMR vaccine they were using with the Urabi AM9 strain mumps vaccine was causing meningitis. There was a public outcry and MMR vaccine was stopped. Mm -hmm. And with that cessation of the vaccine, there was a coincident fall (laughs) in the incidence of autism that has never been seen in any other country. In every other country, every other developed country that has monitored autism rates, there has been this inexorable rise in the incidence of the disease. But in Japan, they saw a rise followed by a fall. Mm. So what happened in Japan then is the they passed the National Childhood Vaccine Act, I think in 1994, and they reintroduced, they had the single vaccine. They introduced the single measles vaccine which they then combined with rubella. So they were giving measles and rubella vaccine together. They had not stopped giving multivalent viral, live viral vaccine. Mm. And that was compulsory, and it was given at 12 months of age. And they made mumps, because of the problems they'd had with it. They've had a new strain, but they made mumps voluntary, and they would give that three weeks or so later. Mm-hmm. Now, what you have to understand is the problem that we identified was associated with multivalent viral vaccine. That's what parents were reporting in the UK. We didn't know whether it was measles and mumps or mumps and rubella or measles and mumps and rubella. We didn't know. Mm -hmm. 
The problem seemed to be with multivalent viral vaccines. So the Japanese did not stop using those. And when they introduced that strategy of giving mandatory measles and rubella vaccine is a combined shot on the same day at 12 months of age, followed by months three weeks later. Then there was a rebound in the incidence of autism that went up dramatically. So you had this multiphasic incidence curve mm. in Japan, where it went from very low levels to a sharp rise with the introduction of MMR, a fall when MMR was withdrawn, and then a sharp rise when the multivalent measles rubella vaccine with mumps uh, three weeks later was introduced. <sighs> and that is compelling evidence, compelling evidence of a link between those vaccines and autism. And yet it was used as evidence that there was no problem, <laughs> that MMR was not the cause. And they really, really should have gone back and tried to understand the original hypothesis we put forward, mm -hmm. which was about the combination of live viral vaccines in a way that nature had never seen before. That was producing this new and idiosyncratic adverse reaction, in my opinion. So it was an interesting beginning to the story. While the executives at Merck involved in the vaccine division were presumably gloating over David Salisbury's troubled humility at having to come for their product mm -hmm. um, in the face of his own disastrous decision making and failing in the UK, the story was clearly not over for Merck. Far, far from over. And so when we come back, what I'd like to do is talk further about Merck and Merck's vaccine, and then return finally to what is an exquisite irony in the whole month story in the United Kingdom. Well, we'll have to go get another cup of tea and then settle in as we come back for episode 13. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie, and we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a Seventh Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.